Welcome to episode 31 of the MMA Rundown Podcast. Although this wasn't a week where we got any big fights happening, we did get a couple of gigantic fights that were just signed. So those will be the first two topics I talk about. I'll start off with the fight that's actually for a title, and that would be between Tony Ferguson and Khabib Nurmagomedov. That one is set for April. <clears throat> and then we have the return of Conor McGregor uh, happening at UFC 246 against Donald Cerrone at 170 pounds. So that's the other big fight that was just announced. Also, a big interview with Gina Carano was dropped on Monday, so I'll just recap one of the bigger points there, which is when she claimed that Dana White had been negotiating for a fight between her and Rousey and had ruined it by calling her a bitch. Then we have more of like a general topic to talk about. I think it's kind of cooled off, but earlier um, in this week, we were hearing some fighters talk about how they really wanted to fight either Floyd Mayweather or Canelo Alvarez, so I'll just kind of broach the topic of fighters trying to, or MMA fighters trying to get into boxing, and why that annoys me as much as it does. Then we have Polaris 12, which was probably the most significant martial arts event as far as I'm concerned this week that was main-evented by Luke Rockhold versus Nick Rodriguez. We have an article that's been shared around quite a bit uh, where Luke Thomas talked about how he felt MMA media is very low quality, and a big reason why is because they're oftentimes afraid to rub the UFC the wrong way. So just a general conversation about journalistic ethics there. And the final topic to talk about this week is going to be Paige Van Zandt, who had declined to fight with Macy Barber, who is ranked five spots above her, and ended up going down a division and fighting a very tough girl, Amanda Rebus. So I'll just talk about that decision and whether or not I think it was a great idea for her, uh, some responses to it. Some people feel as though making her fight Rebus is a way of punishing her and trying to get her out of the UFC on a loss. Uh, so just talk about that topic as well. But first thing to talk about is Tony Ferguson versus Khabib Nurmagomedov. I'm not going to start with the fight, the announcement of the fight so much as I'm going to start with how this fight was negotiated. I don't know what kind of deal Tony Ferguson ended up signing, but I thought it was kind of odd that early in the week it was announced that Khabib had signed his part of the deal, and they were just waiting on Tony to finish it off, which was clearly a negotiation ploy. It, it sounds as though Tony was negotiating his part of it during that time, but he was negotiating a hard line, and they just didn't like uh, the amount that he was asking for, so they made it very apparent to fans that Khabib was signed, and it was Tony who was holding it up uh, to try to pressure Tony into taking whatever they had offered him. For the UFC to do that, I understand that's, that's their position, what sort of bugged me and stuck out to me was that Ali Abdelaziz was also doing it. Ali or Ali is Khabib Nurmagomedov's manager. So on one hand, it would make sense for him to do that if he really liked the deal that Khabib had, because then if there's no fight, Khabib doesn't get the deal. If there's a fight, Khabib does get the deal. So I can understand why he would want it in that way. But the fact that he was so publicly pushing for Tony Ferguson to accept the offer that was given to him, it, in a way, kind of bugs me, because in that way, he's, he's acting in the UFC's interest. Not It's not so much that he's not just acting in his, in Khabib's interest, but he, he's also acting in the UFC's interest. And there's a lot of talk about how uh, Ali always seems to get the deals uh, that he wants, how his fighters always seem to get the fights that they're looking for. And, and the question is, why is it that he's been so successful where others haven't been? And there, there's sort of murmurs about how he has um, certain relationships with some of the top brass of the UFC. And to me, the way this negotiated out, where he was negotiating on the UFC's behalf, and in addition to on his client's behalf. I thought that was a little bit odd. Uh, but anyway, eventually, Tony Ferguson and his management group decide to fly into Vegas and work on negotiating in person. They come to a deal that they agree to, and so we have the fight. 
fight set for April, which means that we still have five months between then and now before the fight happens. Uh, positive aspect of it is if there is any kind of injury in training camp, especially if it happens early on, you're, you're probably going to have time to heal up and keep the fight going. Uh, so it's not as though the longer camp necessarily hurts either of them. Uh, it's going to be up to them whether or not they want to be in camp right now or if they feel like, a, for example, like a 12-week camp is best. They don't necessarily have to start training right now or training super hard right now just because of the fight sign. So I, I don't know that the long lead time is necessarily going to mean it's more likely that someone gets injured. To me, whether this was signed with six weeks to go or whether it's signed um, with five months to go, I, I think the odds of this fight falling out are, are pretty similar, and I, I would hope that this fight doesn't fall out and we actually do get the fight, because it's a fight I want, a lot of people want to see. I've done some previews in the past where I've talked about how I think this fight would go, and to me, the, the big question here is I'm assuming that, at least early on, could be will be able to get Tony Ferguson down. To me, the question is going to be how does Tony Ferguson approach fighting off of his back does he look at it and say hey look i'm a 10th planet black belt i think i can submit him off my back or does he say i'm a division two folk style wrestling national champion i can get up um and work my way back to my feet and to me i think the better option for him is going to be trying to work his way back to the feet even if he does give up his back at points as i mentioned khabib oftentimes will get to dominant positions like back or like mount and he won't finish from there especially early on. He, he had those positions with uh, Ally Quinta multiple times, never finished Al. Had those positions with Dustin Poirier, didn't finish him until the third round. Uh, so to me, if I were cornering Ferguson, I would say, look, especially early on, I would work on getting back up and really make Khabib work to keep you down and, and really count on those later rounds for when you're, when you're going to be harder to take down, uh, when you're going to be more slippery, when you're going to have the edge in cardio to, to really turn it on then and try to win the fight at that point. So to me, I think Tony Ferguson has the tools to beat Khabib Nurmagomedov. I just don't know whether or not he's going to have the tactics to do it or whether or not he's going to follow the tactics to do it. So this is going to be a really interesting fight. I hope it doesn't fall through. And if we get this fight in April, man, if the story is properly told where, where people understand that Tony could potentially be the guy to beat Khabib, this fight could do great numbers, even though I don't think Tony Ferguson is, is quite the name that he probably should be right now, at least to a casual audience. As far as fighters who are a big name to a casual audience, though, uh, we have our next fight announcement, and that was Conor McGregor versus Donald Cerrone. This is a fight that I think a lot of people knew was coming uh, for the date that it was given at, for July 18th. Uh, it was just a matter of them finalizing the contracts. Finally have finalized the contracts, so we have this fight happening at 170 pounds, and it's going to be happening in Las Vegas. Now, the 170-pound part is very interesting to me for a couple of reasons. Uh, for one, the, the question of why is it at 170 in the first place, you would figure that Cowboy being a guy who's who switched back and forth between 155 and 170, a guy who hasn't quite been that successful at 170, but has had a hard time cutting to 155. Uh, he, he sort of played around with divisions, and I guess at this point, they're both at a point where even though this fight's going to be at 170, if Connor wins this fight, a lot of fans are still going to look at it as though he beat a top-ranked lightweight, even though the fight wasn't at lightweight. Um, and, and then same goes for Cowboy. If he gets a win, he gets a win over a former lightweight champion. So to me... Though the weight is worth noting, I don't think it's going to be one of those things where people are really going to think about it or even really, really remember it um, a few months down the line after the fight happens. But to me, the more interesting story with the weight is why would Connor take a fight at 170 rather than 155 against Cowboy? Because to me, this fight favors Connor more at 155 than it does at 170. Now, from a stylistic matchup, and I'll get to that, I, th I still think this fight favors Connor. Um, but if you're Connor and you're trying to, to make everything work out where. It, 
where, where the factors really point in your direction. I don't know why he would take this fight at 170, because again, like I mentioned, Donald Cerrone had a hard time making 155. He eventually moved up to 170 because he, he just didn't like making the cuts. He's older now than he was then, so you'd imagine the cut's still not going to be easy for him. For for Connor, even though it's easier to make 170 than it is to make 155, he, he can make 55 easier than Cowboy can make 155. And one of the advantages to having a weight cut to have to do is that it sort of forces discipline on you. Because one of the cool things about martial arts is that, and this just kind of applies to someone who just casually wants to do martial arts, never mind like a, a top-ranked competitor. If you're having trouble losing weight, maybe you're like trying uh, yoga or something else, one of the special things about martial arts, especially if you compete in it, is that if I'm doing yoga or something else and I want to eat that extra piece of cake or I want to go out drinking maybe an extra night more so than I otherwise would, if I don't have a scale that's waiting for me at the end of a certain time period, I, I can kind of rationalize that to myself, but the scale doesn't lie. Uh, so if you're going to do something unhealthy, you're going to do something that isn't necessarily going to benefit you, it's going to catch up to you. And that was something that Chael Sonnen talked about when he moved up to heavyweight, was that he, he was saying he was having a hard time with it because back when he had to make 205 or even 185, he would have to make those extra runs because he knew he had to do it to make weight. But when weight wasn't a factor, it was hard to find motiva motivation to do the right thing all the time. So for Connor, a, a concern with him has definitely been where are his motivations at. You, you've seen him get in trouble with law a lot. He's been busy in the whiskey business, and you would figure for him to have to make 155, just to have that where it, it forces him to really put his nose to the grindstone and really focus on on making weight, on training as much as possible, and really being honest to the scale. I think that would benefit him more than being at 170, where he can kind of fuck off a little bit more and still get away with it. So to me, 170 is actually a, a bad idea for Connor to take the fight at. As far as this matchup works stylistically, though, what is Connor really good at? He's he's very good at starting fast and he's very good at boxing. So if you're looking for someone who's gonna have a have a rough matchup against him, it's gonna be someone who starts slow and someone who who struggles against good boxers. Uh, and Cowboy's a guy who starts slow and he's he's a guy who often struggles against good boxers. Uh, Gaethje outboxed him, was able to knock him out there. Jorge Masvidal just lit him up on the feet before he took him out, um, primarily using his punches, not so much his kicks. So to me, this matchup is is perfect for Connor and that in a stylistic manner, where if he does get the win, not only does he get a win over a ranked guy, but he gets a win over a guy who has the UFC record for most wins, a guy who's very well known, and he can really springboard off of it, because to a lot of casual fans, they're not going to know that this is a stylistic matchup that's perfect for Connor. Uh, so, so a win here definitely puts him back where he wants to be. A loss here, it, it's going to look really bad, man. Like <laughs> to, to a casual fan, it might be like, oh yeah, well, Cowboy's really good. Um, but if you understand how how this matchup is probably the the most um, the most friendly matchup for Connor in the division, it, it, it's tough. I mean, I, I guess a guy like Justin Gaethje would also be a pretty a pretty good matchup for Connor. But to me, Cowboy would be a, a slightly easier matchup, especially at this point in his career. And so a loss here for Connor is being really bad. But it, at least looking at what we've seen from Connor in the past, I, I don't know how disciplined Connor has been in his training ever since. Um, all, all the incidents that he's had uh, ever since he really had that fight with Floyd Mayweather where he got a ton of money and has had a lot of fame and it seems as though that's gotten to his head. But at least the kind of that we had seen before, the kind of that just ran through Eddie Alvarez, if we get a, a fighter who's similar to that, I'm not saying that he's better than that version, which you would assume that if that was back in 2016 that he would have made some improvements from there. Even if we get that same version, I think that's enough to beat Cowboy Cerrone. Um, but if, if he's really fallen behind and he loses this fight, 
it's really going to have to raise some red flags and really say, hey, look, I, I don't really know where this guy is going to go if he wants to be at the top of any division. I mean, maybe he really puts his nose to the grindstone and goes back to Featherweight and tries to re- regain the same success he had there, but I, I just don't see him ever returning to 145. So to me, this is a fight where if all goes to plan, that's great for Connor, but if Cowboy gets a win here, it could be a disaster for him. Next topic to talk about is going to be uh, Gina Carano and her interview with Ariel Hawani. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to play a clip that was put up on Twitter from ESPN. Uh, th- this clip de- describes the situation of her negotiating the fight with Ronda Rousey and then it falling through, and then I'll comment on it after the fact. Popular. Um, I remember they they finally called for a meeting, and I walked in. They were like in this restaurant, and they looked like two, uh, I don't know, just like two like big, you know, muscly guys at a table in like the middle of like Hollywood. And I remember thinking. Um, what took you guys so long? I've been not like, you know, what took you so long? And so they were like, okay, well, you know, we'd love to offer you a million dollars. We'd love to, you know, have that fight. And I was like, um, well, that's, that sounds great. I'm going to need you to do me a favor then because I, I've been acting now and I'm not, you know, active in any gym. So it's going to take me, it's going to, you know, you're going to have to give me some time to build a team and go join a team which is not an easy thing, as sure as all the fighters know in this. You know, you, you have to find a team and, or build one that's going to, like, be into what you're doing. And if you haven't been, like, actively a part of anything, you know, you can walk in as Gina Carano or whoever, and, you know, you still have to, like, you know, find the people that are going to really be there for you, and that takes time. So I told him, you know, you got to just be able to sit on this for about six months, um, Dana, you know, like you, you can't say anything and let me like get situated with that in mind because that sounds great. And I'd love to do it. And so it was a nice dinner and we, we all left, you know, positive and I, I left stoked and I, I was like, okay, well this is, this makes sense. This is my moment to come and be back in there. Um, and then, uh, like the next <laughs> day Dana was out there talking about me and like saying you know talking about my name and like telling the people that he was going to sign me and and I don't even have a team yet and I was like that's not what we discussed you're supposed to give me at least six months to kind of like find a team like um and then he started trying to put on the pressure through the media and then um it just really kind of it was a bummer because I told him uh, over text message, you know, like that's uh, that's not what we talked about. I need a, I need time. I can't just like, you know, now I'm gonna walk into a gym and people know that's what I'm doing. I need to build trust and I need to find people. And um, so then uh, he kept on doing that. He kept on doing that. And I'm still, you know, I'm still kind of searching for a team and like feeling all that pressure. And then he sent me a text message that said. This bitch isn't, uh, this bitch isn't, uh, this bitch is like, something us around, like, you know, effing us around or something like that. And I, I sent a text message back, I, I said, I think that you, I think that you sent that to the wrong person. And he said, I don't think I did. And, and that was the last conversation that we had over a text message, because I don't think that that was, like, the kind of uh, environment I wanted to come back into. And so- All right, so that's the clip right there. So there's a, a couple things to talk about here. First, I'll, I'll start off where she's saying that when they offered her the fight, she said she wasn't in a gym at that point. 
and that she was going to need to find a place to train and get situated there. To me, this is a bit of a weird point that she's making. So first off, her saying that she wasn't training during her acting career at all is sort of odd to me. Even if you are doing other stuff, oftentimes, if martial arts is what you love, you're still going to train. Even if you're not training like five times a week, you're probably still at least getting in there every so often. So for her not to be training at all is a bit odd. And it tells me even if this fight happened, it probably would have been pretty disappointing just because she wasn't really training for a long period of time. Uh, Other point is that she was saying she would have had to figure out where to train from there. So, to give her some credit, her old training situation had been under Sean Topkins, who had passed away. Uh, so, it's not as though she had, like, a, an old team that she could go, just go right back to, because that team sort of splintered out after the, the passing of Sean Tompkins. But with that being said, it's not as though Tompkins was the only coach that she ever worked with. It's not as though she didn't have any training partners that she could have been close with. And so, even though there was some splintering there, if you have some close training partners and people who you're pretty close with, you can say, hey... Uh, where are you training at right now? How much do you like it? But also this idea where she's like, well, if I come to a camp and they know that I want to fight, that would make it weird. Well, what do they think you're there for? I mean, you're you're there to get ready for a fight. If that's not what you're doing, I, I mean, at some point they're gonna know, right? Like if you're not if you're just training there casually and you're, you're trying to get ready for a fight, that's not a good idea. If you're training there hard as though you're getting ready for a fight, I think they're gonna notice. So I'm not sure what what her idea was there in terms of what she was expecting. Uh, she also mentioned in this interview that she was training with Greg Jackson at a point for a return to Strike Force after the loss to Cyborg. Uh, so even there, it's kind of like, well, did you not like Jackson Jacksons? Did you not want to go back to Jacksons? Uh, so to me, this whole idea of I need six months to to find a camp and get ready to train, it, it definitely sounds odd to me that that she wouldn't have already like had some leads in mind in terms of where to go. Uh, never mind the fact that she wasn't training. Uh, and then also her her request for Dana to to be quiet about it until she found a camp. I mean, again, if she shows up into a gym, that's a story that's going to end up getting leaked anyway. So at least for the public knowing, I, I don't see the harm in, in Dana going out and saying it. Uh, as far as the camps work, I, I I don't see the point in Dana, or I don't see the harm in Dana going out and saying that either. Uh, so to me, that concern didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, I'm also curious what the timeline here was. If it was her idea that it would be six months to find a camp, and then she says, okay, yes, now I'm going to do it. Or she doesn't find a camp and then she says, okay, never mind, I'm not going to do it. Like, I'm not sure what her what, what the idea there was. Um, if you're saying, hey, look, give me six months, then I'll take the fight, that's a little bit different. But to say six months and then I'll be able to give you another answer, that's a little odd. And during this time period, obviously, Ronda Rousey's going to keep fighting. The UFC's going to keep promoting her. And, and with a big fight like this, you're going to have to make decisions down the line of do we want to hang on to Rousey and maybe rather than have her fight like every four months or every five months, we, we, we hang on to her for nine months and wait until Gina Carano's ready to make that the next fight. Uh, so if that's what you want to do, you have to really know where Gina's at and when Gina's going to be available. So it sounds as though Gina didn't really know when she'd be available, and for a promoter, that's going to be pretty frustrating to deal with. Does that warrant the text message that Dana White sent? No, it doesn't. Uh, obviously, the text message Dana White sent ended up killing the deal. So if you're Dana White and you want to get this fight between Gina and, and Rousey, uh, obviously calling her a bitch is not a not a great way to go about it now i think from a trolling standpoint that's there, there's something kind of funny about that text message like let's let's be honest here like in a way it's almost like um in a way it's like verbal jujitsu where if i'm going against you in jujitsu i'm not just gonna be in guard and just throw up an armbar and catch you like usually i'm gonna have to like distract you or get you to like put yourself in a position where i can armbar you and in this way rather than just call gina a bitch straight up like hey you're a bitch um, 
his, his little this girl is being a bitch trying to draw her out to be like oh i don't think this was sent to the right person then be like no no no, it was like granted it's kind of like one setup and then a quick finish from there but it, it in a way it's a little bit funny to me but that being said it, it's completely inappropriate and obviously killed the deal so was, was it worth it for dana white absolutely not um but to me there's something a little bit funny about about saying it that way but obviously it wasn't that smart to do but for gina if she really was serious about coming back, it just it just seems odd to me that it would take her that long to, to find a camp, especially since she'd already been in the sport, since she'd already had other coaches who were still active in coaching, uh, since she had other training partners who I'm sure she was close to with who were still active, and I'm sure a, a handful of them were at least happy with where they were training would, would have recommended her to, to come along there and train there as well. Uh, so it, it, it seems pretty odd to me that she had the request that she did. Um also, it's kind of unclear from what she described how long this time frame was um, between when they had the initial meeting and when Dana White was like, "This bitch doesn't want it." Um, so I, I don't know how long it was, how long it was taking her, how long it should have taken. But to me, it, it doesn't seem as though it's as, as clear as Gina was just doing the right thing. Gina was just doing what made sense, and then Dana kind of came in out of nowhere and just ruined it. I, I think both of them definitely had some issues on their own end that that made this fight not work between Gina. Um, having such a hard time finding a place to train, which shouldn't have been the case, and then Dana White um, just spoiling it with the text messages that he sent. Uh, so a little unfortunate at this point. Gina's probably not ever coming back. Um, so that, that was just a fight we missed at the time. But honestly, if we got that fight, it, it would have been between a Gina who probably didn't have a whole ton of time to train, a Gina who hadn't been training for a while. And, I, I mean, if she wins, then great, but where does she go from there? Because she still wants to do acting. If she loses, then we sort of get this fake idea of where Ronda Rousey was relative to Gina because the Gina that we would have gotten would not have been um, the best Gina that we could have had. Next topic to talk about is MMA fighters trying to get into boxing and why this topic frustrates me so much. So we had Jorge Masvidal talking about going down to 154 to fight Floyd Mayweather. Uh, he's also been calling out Canelo Alvarez. Uh, we had Steve Miocic talking about fighting Tyson Fury. Uh, and obviously we had a few other guys. I think TJ Dillashaw also is talking about fighting Floyd. And I want to talk about why this annoys me so much. Uh, first off, when an MMA fighter calls out a boxer to fight in a boxing match, what's effectively happening is you're having someone who fights in a very open style challenging someone who fights in a limited style and saying, hey, I want to face you in that limited style. Like, to me, this would be almost like a, a jiu-jitsu world champion calling out a wrestler and trying to fight them in a wrestling match. And that's really not something you see. Uh, even when you do see the BJJ versus wrestling crossovers, oftentimes they at least, like, find a skill set that sort of meets them somewhere in the middle. Like, you have this Bo Nickel versus Gordon Ryan match, where they're, they're not exactly meeting in the middle. It's a lot closer to jiu-jitsu than it is to wrestling. Uh, but at least they're, like, doing no leg locks and no guard pulls. But here, you're having these MMA fighters who, on the feet, can throw kicks, on the feet, can throw knees, on the feet, can throw elbows. Uh, they can grapple, they can punch from grappling positions, and they can just straight up take you down and then grapple you there, offering to fight these boxers in just total boxing rules. And the reason why is transparent, and the reason why is because they think, and the key word here is think, that they're going to make a lot more money in boxing than they otherwise would in MMA. And what's annoying to me about that is it's not as though by putting on boxing gloves you're going to make so much more money than MMA. Oftentimes MMA shows will make a lot more money than boxing shows will. Uh, so it's not as though they couldn't make a similar amount of money, if not more money, in boxing, or in MMA than they could in boxing. I mean, part of me wonders... How much money Conor McGregor versus Floyd Mayweather would have done in MMA rather than it being in boxing? I I don't know that it sells any less if it's an MMA fight than it does if it's a boxing fight. Um, if anything, I would actually think it might sell more because there's at least like the curiosity of what what's Floyd Mayweather going to look like in MMA. 
guessing what Conor McGregor is going to look like in boxing is not as difficult as guessing what Floyd Mayweather would look like in an MMA situation. So to me, that fight might have even been better off. But the reason why boxers are making a lot more than MMA fighters right now is because a lot of these boxers are running their own promotion companies and they don't have the UFC over the top of them. You, you also have to remember in that Conor versus Floyd fight, the UFC was a partial promoter there. The UFC definitely took a big cut of it. So if TJ Dillashaw is going to fight Floyd Mayweather, if Jorge Masvidal is going to fight Canelo Alvarez, they're both under UFC contracts, so the UFC is still going to take a giant cut of that. So if they're assuming they're just going to get just a regular boxing payday out of it, that's not true. Um, but on top of that, one of the reasons why the Conor versus Floyd fight worked so well is because it was the first of its kind. At, at this point, we, we saw that fight. We, we know how it worked out. And on top of that, these guys like TJ Dillashaw, Jorge Masvidal, Stephen Miocic, they aren't the stars that Conor McGregor is. Uh, there isn't the curiosity of what's Floyd going to look like against an MMA fighter that they used to be. So to me, these fights aren't going to bring in anywhere near the money that the Conor Floyd fight brought in in the first place. So to me, if you're an MMA fighter and you really want to make a, a ton of money on a crossover fight, your your best path is going to be to fight out your contract in the UFC, start your own promotion company. Uh, Floyd started Golden Boy. Uh, yeah, or not Golden Oscar started Golden Boy, obviously. Um, Floyd was not the Golden Boy. Uh, Floyd has uh, the money team, Mayweather Promotions. Connor created his own little promotional company, but actually hasn't run any shows. But if you think you can make so much more money, then really bet on yourself. Finish out your UFC contract, uh, start your own promotion, do a co-promote. The UFC won't have their hand in the cookie jar there. Uh, and, and see what you can make. Really really place a bet on yourself. But if you think by just throwing on boxing gloves that you're going to make a significant more or a significantly larger amount of money, I just honestly don't see the reason to believe that or, or see how that's going to be the case. Uh, so to me, if, if you're an MMA fighter and you want to make more money, first off, negotiate for more pay-per-view points. Uh, in some cases, that means that you're going to negotiate an offer with less guaranteed money, and if your fight doesn't sell that well, then you might make less than you otherwise would. Um, but money in, the, money, money in MMA, money in fight sports is made based off of the amount of people who are paying for tickets, the amount of people who are paying for pay-per-views. Um, so if you think you're worth a lot of money, what you're saying is you think that you sell a lot of tickets and sell a lot of pay-per-views. Uh, so if you believe that you can actually do that, then really, really take a bet on yourself and actually go out and do it. And if you're correct, uh, there's a lot of money to be made, but if you're incorrect, well, I guess you aren't worth as much money as you think you are. Next topic to talk about is going to be Polaris, the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu event that is based out in Europe. Uh, so we had a main event between Nick Rodriguez and Luke Rockhold. This was a match that really interested me, but I was kind of worried that the Luke Rockhold we would get here... Uh, for one, wouldn't have been training enough leading into the match, and then number two, uh, probably wouldn't have scouted out um, Rodriguez that well. And it, it seems as though how this match went sort of falls in line with that. So Rodriguez or um, Rockhold going into this match was saying that he really wasn't training that much; he was just kind of training when he wanted to. Um, but then on top of that, he was also saying um, that for Rodriguez, he just kind of like hurt some things here and there. But it, it didn't seem as though the way he he fought this match as though he had really prepared a smart game plan for Rodriguez. Rodriguez is successful in, in that in most Jiu-Jitsu matches, he's able to out-wrestle his opponent, so he, he doesn't get put on bottom. Uh, and then when he's on top, if, if he gets you to turtle, he, he's pretty good about taking the back. Um, but if, if he's in your guard, he, he sort of stays at a, at a safe range and then just sort of like explodes in here and there. Uh, if he can force you to turtle, he'll try to take it back, but if not, he'll just kind of reset. Uh, so the best way to go about facing him is to, to get the fight to the mat quickly. Don't waste a bunch of time on the feet, because oftentimes he's going to be more aggressive there and and score more in the judge's eyes. Uh, and then from there, don't really let him get away. Don't When he tries to back away, you really chase him down. Uh, that, that's what Kynan did in the rematch at Fight to Win, where he pulled guard on Nick Rodriguez. Uh, and then when Nick was trying to pull away, he was able to snatch up a leg, uh, eventually catches him in a heel hook. 
but for Luke Rockle, he decided he would rather uh, try to wrestle Nick Rodriguez. And Rodriguez won the wrestling exchanges here. So Rockle never got on top. Uh, there were a couple times where he got taken down was able to get back up. But one of the times when he got taken down, he ended up getting his back taken. Uh, ended up rolling underneath Mount uh, to escape and then eventually got out. So Rodriguez wins this match not by submission, but um, by decision. Uh, both are being more active on the feet with the takedowns and then also having a good position on the ground. Uh, so Rockle didn't seem, seem to play a very strategic game here. It's just kind of like he wanted to, to to do what he felt he was good at, but unfortunately for him, he wasn't able to take Nick Rodriguez down and control him, and with that being the case, wasn't able to win the match here. The other big match uh, relative to the UFC is that they had Gilbert Burns, who is now ranked welterweight, going up against Tommy Langaker. Gilbert Burns is a former Black Belt World Champion. Langaker, I believe, uh, if he wasn't a world champ at Black Belt, he's, he's at least uh, won, won some other really big tournaments, so he's world-class. Gilbert Burns has been focusing more on MMA, whereas Langaker has still been focusing primarily on jiu-jitsu. And as we saw with Adolfo Vieira going, returning to Spider, where he wasn't as dominant as he used to be in jiu-jitsu because uh, he's had his focus on MMA, uh, Gilbert wasn't quite as dominant as he used to be in the gi uh, and ends up losing the match here, although he didn't get submitted. It was still uh, a decision loss for him. Uh, so for the two UFC guys here, they, they end up taking losses to, to a couple guys who were really focused on Brazilian jiu-jitsu. At least focused on competitive grappling in the meantime. Next topic to talk about is going to be an article that was put up by Bloody Elbow uh, in regards to Luke Thomas. And the idea of it was that he really had a an issue with a lot of the MMA media. And one of the points that he was making was around this Conor McGregor fight where he feels like a lot of the MMA media who aren't reporting the Conor McGregor fight is also mentioning that Conor currently has a couple of sexual assault allegations against him. They're not doing it because they're afraid that they're going to lose access to the UFC. So his point was that a lot of MMA journalists are not covering stories properly because they're afraid that the UFC is going to penalize them for doing so. And so they're they're just kind of like tiptoeing around, around a lot of important points, and he definitely takes issue with that. As far as what I see with that with that being the case, I, I, I think it's pretty obvious that he, he's not wrong, especially with someone like Brad Okamoto. Um, we've seen Errol Hawani get in trouble with the UFC, and he's definitely lost access, and lost ability to get a lot of scoops that he used to get, uh, whereas Okamoto is now getting a lot of the scoops that Ariel Hawani used to have. So is it true that the UFC is going to punish media who aren't all that kind of them? Yes. Is that true in a lot of other sports and a lot of other media? Yeah, that's that's definitely the case. And that's definitely something that a lot of people have to tiptoe. But to me, one of the more annoying things about this story is that it comes across as though there are a handful of people who are unlike these people who are afraid of the UFC and they're, they're all doing the right thing. Um mostly Luke Thomas being being that guy, given that he's the one that this article is written about. And to me, what, what frustrates me about it is that while Luke Thomas is happy to rip on someone like Brett Okamono, who's not going to really ruffle, ruffle too many feathers at the UFC to get his scoops, he's a guy who has also made choices um, in terms of stories not to cover uh, because he was worried about how it affect him as well. And no story is more obvious than the case of what happened with Team Lloyd Irvin uh, I believe it was probably like seven years ago. So to recap that story, for, first off, Luke Thomas, w- one of the things that really made him, r- really built him in the MMA community in journalism is that in most sports, even someone who's like a bad basketball um, commentator, they, they probably at least like played varsity basket- basketball in high school. Like they at least understand basketball to that level. Whereas in MMA, we have a lot of people who don't understand the sport at all, who didn't wrestle, who didn't do jiu-jitsu, who didn't do any striking who just came into the sport and, and just started covering it. And with Luke Thomas, at least he, at the time, I don't know where he's at right now, but at the time he was a purple belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, so at least he understood the sport. Uh, he, he does a lot of breakdowns where he really shows the understanding he has. 
and, and by him being a guy who understood the sport, it, it really helped him out quite a bit. Um, but where he got that purple belt was under a Team Light Urban affiliate. Uh, I believe it's called the Beta Academy. But Team Light Urban, at, at the time, uh, back when the scandal happened, they were one of the premier Brazilian jiu-jitsu teams in, in the world. They had a, a handful of guys who even now are still finding success. You have JT Torres, who just won his second ADCC this year. Uh, that was actually a couple months ago. He was part of the Team Light Urban back then. Keenan Cornelius has done a lot for himself in the sport. Uh, won major titles at every belt other than black, where he's he's still medaled. But though though he hasn't medal or though he hasn't taken gold, he's been some of the top guys, including guys like Nicholas Marigali. Uh, so there were a lot of great guys who were a part of that team. Uh, they had some great events. They were marketed very well. Uh, you had the Kamara Trap System, which was um, a very well marketed DVD at the time. Uh, you also have um, what was called like the Metal Chasers team, which was like their competition team. They did really well with that. There was the BJJ Kumite. So later, Urban was. You, you could argue he was on top of the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu world. He was also uh, closely affiliated with Alliance, which is Dominic Cruz's team, also Phil Davis. So the, the guys out there, uh, even James Vick, they, they all trained under him. So he was a very important figure, both in the Jiu-Jitsu world, but then also the MMA world. And at, I believe it was after like a New Year's party, a couple of his upper belts, um, they were hanging out with another girl who was um, also training there. And eventually what happened is that they both assaulted and I believe also sexually assaulted her. And, and this created just a huge uproar in the community. And if you trained jiu-jitsu, you would understand why. Uh, just imagine a couple of her belts at your gym um, sexually assaulting another girl who trains there. Like, you, you can understand just how, how vile that is and how much that could really say about the culture of your gym for something like that to even happen. Uh, so it definitely brought up a lot of issues with the culture around Lloyd Irvin after that happened. And... After that happened, there was a story that leaked about him where it says that at, at a point, I believe in the late 80s, he was charged for something that happened in college where there was a girl who had a train run on her, and her claim was that it was sexual assault. Their claim, or at least the claim of the um, the frat that Lloyd Irvin was a part of, was that she had consented to it, um, but, but he was charged for rape, though he never was um, convicted of it. So there was sort of this issue of not not only was there a rape within Team Lloyd Irvin's team, but there was also like this idea of him uh, committing a rape back in college. And just that whole situation and how it was handled on his part where he was like created a website called LloydIrvinRape.com, uh, which was like a, a way to like kind of play the SEO and get people to who were searching for information on him. Um, they would go to that website and it ended up like talking about like a woman's self-defense seminar done at Team Lloyd Irvin. Uh, so people found that to be to be really wrong for him to do that. Um, but the team fractured a lot of the, the top guys like JT Torres, like um, Mike Perez, like Keenan Cornelius. They all left. Uh, a lot of them went to Atos, but a few of them went to some other places. And this was a story that really didn't get – it got a lot of coverage, but it could have gotten better coverage. And for a guy like Luke Thomas, who had a lot of direct knowledge of Team Lloyd Urban, of the inner workings of Team Lloyd Urban, who had a lot of contacts within Team Lloyd Urban, he could have taken this story and really ran with it. And rather than do that, he just decided he was not going to comment on it at all. It was too close to home. He didn't want to say anything about it. They said, you know what, at some point, maybe when things die down, I'll eventually get to it. And to my knowledge, he still hasn't gotten to it to this day. Um, but even if he had, uh, for him to have as much inside information on an important story like that and to sit on it, it I really find it hard for him to, to now come out and talk about Brad Okamoto not wanting to, to bring up Conor McGregor being accused of a couple of things. Um, when he really bit his tongue back in the day with Lloyd Urban. So to me, is what he's saying true? Is the general point true? Yeah, I mean, it's understandable. There are some journal some journalists who, who try not to ruffle feathers a little bit too much. Um, 
but I, I don't take this as a, as, a, as a situation where someone like him or a lot of other people should say, hey, well, they're biting their tongue, but I'm not biting my tongue. So that means that I'm of a higher moral character than they are. Because in a lot of cases, when you look at look at an individual, for example, when you look at when you look at um, Luke Thomas, um, things aren't always so green with them either. Final topic to talk about here is going to be Paige Van Zant. So she was offered a fight multiple times with Macy Barber, who I believe is ranked number 10 in their division. And or in her division, she's ranked number 15, and she turned that fight down. Eventually, she ends up taking a fight with the number 15 rank at Strawweight, so she ends up having to go down 10 pounds uh, against Amanda Rebus. And one of the points that I saw made after this was that this was the UFC punishing her for not wanting to re-sign to a new contract. So they were saying, well, look, uh, she's not re-signing to a new contract, so here's what we're doing to her. She, we're putting her on the prelims. We're putting her in Brazil. We're putting her up against a, a name that isn't very well known at the time, but is very difficult, uh, likely going to give her a loss, and then by doing so, reduce her value, and then when she hits free agency, um, she's going to be of reduced value when she eventually signs with someone else. I, I don't really see that being as being the case, because she was offered the fight with Macy Barber, and in the fight with Macy Barber, she gets a higher card placement, most likely. It's against someone higher rank, so if she gets the win there, there's more upside for her. Uh, it's a fight that people are, are definitely talking about, I'm definitely interested in. I mean, if you think about some of the, the most uh, hyped-up women's fights right now, a Macy Barber versus Paige Van Zandt fight would definitely be, be in the top five, you'd have to figure. Uh, so she had that offer, and it definitely could have helped build her and get some more attention and would have done the opposite of what some people are claiming. So to me, this isn't really a case of the UFC um, trying to send her packing um, with as little reputation as possible. To me, it's just she didn't take another fight. That was a really good opportunity for her, so this is the fight that was available, and that's what she gets. Um, so I, I really don't see too much foul play here by the UFC. It's just if you don't take the first fight that's offered to you, especially if it's a very good offer like the one Macy Barber, uh, you, you can't expect the next offer to be significantly better, and that's not what happened here, and that's not really what's going to happen in most cases. So what do you do? So that'll probably be it for this week. Uh, next week, the big topic that I would imagine having to talk about is going to be the match between Bo Nickel and Gordon Ryan. Uh, so this here is a crossover match that is very interesting where you have someone from a more limited sport and wrestling going into a, a larger sport in, in nogi grappling slash Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Uh, so we'll see how this match works out. We'll see how the rules are played, whether no guard pull means that Gordon Ryan is going to give up too, whether Bo Nickel is going to be allowed to back away and not engage too much from top. So we'll, we'll see where they go from there. Uh, a lot of interesting stuff, though, and can't wait to see it. So I'm sure there'll be some other big MMA stories that come up. I didn't expect there to be two giant fights that were announced this week that, that ended up happening. I'm sure there'll be some other cool things that are announced over the course of the next week before our next podcast, and I'll talk about them then.